Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. My podcasts often deal with distressing situations which are not suitable for children, and some adults for that matter. Some of what I discuss may trigger uncomfortable emotions. If that does occur, please reach out to Lifeline, Beyond Blue or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. Hello, I'm Narelle Fraser. I was a cop with Victoria Police for 27 years, 15 of those as a detective, having dealt with all types of crime from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. I witnessed the effect crime has on all those involved and became one of those victims myself in 2012 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. However, out of adversity comes other opportunities like this, my own podcast. I still pinch myself but thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime yeah yeah you'd heard of things in the past but you sort of think oh yeah that's i'm right that's not happening to me i'm I'm good to go and uh you push on that's that's what we do since acquiring a degree in civil engineering specialising in traffic and structural engineering in his final years at university in 1986, Peter Bellion's goal was simple to him, but not to anyone else. He wanted to reduce the road toll. Peter joined Victoria Police later that year in 1986 and he quickly became an accident reconstruction expert, having spent most of his 30-year career measuring, photographing, reconstructing and providing expert opinion of sickening sites that most of us couldn't bear. He attended over 2,000 fatal car accidents and 20 police road deaths. You wouldn't be surprised to know that Peter's got an incredibly analytical, astute mind. Peter's one of the few men I know, in fact, I'll go further than that, he's the only man I know who's never forgotten a birthday an anniversary, funeral, wedding or 21st. But unfortunately, he also remembers minute details of so many of the fatal accidents he attended. But that brilliant mind played tricks on him. It made him believe that he could manage his daily tsunami of trauma, heartache and grief. In 2007, he was initially diagnosed with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, but it took many more years, many more fatal accidents for his PTSD to become chronic, 
to the point where he was ill health retired in 2016. Although Peter struggles with chronic psoriasis, he's heavily medicated, he has constant flashbacks, exercises constantly to try and rid himself of traumatic thoughts. Peter still manages to be there for others who are struggling with their own demons. And with the help and support of his family, he sees good in most days. And as he says, I love this, he says, every day above the grass is a good day. (laughs) Uh, Thank you very much for your time, Peter, and welcome. Good morning, Narelle. Thank you for having me along. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for being here. So where does this passion for reducing the, the road toll come from, Peter? Like it's obviously a subject very close to your heart. Uh, yeah, so it sort of started um, when I was younger um, at about the time, you know, getting licensed and all that sort of stuff. Um, my neighbour next door, Brett, his dad was in the police force and, um, you know, he we used to sort of go for a bit of a drive around and uh, for some obscure reason we'd uh, when we'd heard there'd been a road fatality or something somewhere on the news, we would go there um, you know, maybe you know, not straight away, but after it's cleaned up and actually walk through and try and work out what happened. Um, but I, I suppose um, the the reality of it all actually goes back to when I was very, very young as a five-year-old and I used to get my matchbox cars and um, smash them with a hammer <laughs> to see how they perform. And how did they perform, your little matchbox cars? <laughs> not not good with a hammer, so it just goes to show you that uh, motor vehicle structures aren't aren't infallible and, um, you know, there's uh, only a certain amount of uh, energy that the car structures are able to absorb and, um, you know, people drive around in them thinking they're invincible at times and uh, they can uh, be distracted or they can be speeding a little bit or they can not have their seatbelt on or they can be a little bit drug affected. But in a split second, that can all turn very, very pear-shaped and uh, then uh, you have that horrendous outcome of either a, a fatality occurring, which has a ripple effect of flying onto about 100 people at least, um, or, you know, somebody is very seriously injured uh, for the rest of their life and uh, spent in time under significant rehabilitation where they uh, need to learn to walk and talk again and be spoon-fed and being taken to the toilet and things like that. So, um, yeah, that's – so, you know, when, when I joined the unit, um, what was in the accident investigation section, you know, the major collision investigation unit, um, you know, there was uh, in 1989 there were 770 people killed on our roads and in 1990 that dropped down to uh, 500. So there was 270 less deaths in that first year. Um, back in 1986 I did a final investigation project for my engineering degree um, and that was a review of speed limits on Victoria's roads and what I found out back then in doing that was that the police in their uh, collision reports didn't actually record any information as to actual travel speeds uh, involved. They'd record the speed limit of the road but there was no information as to whether speed was really a cause 
causal factor in the crash at all. And and from my engineering background, you know, you're able to analyse crashes and work out that you could work out speeds. Um, and eventually, um, you know, we found out that about 30% of road trauma was at least excessive speed related or travelling at an inappropriate speed for the environmental conditions present. So that report I did back in 1986, um, I also found out that the police were operating on, you know, a fairly high tolerance above the speed limit at that point in time before you'd act, somebody would be intercepted for a speeding infringement. Um, and that behaviour had to change as the crash rates were extremely high and that really needed to change to bring down that tolerance. And the only way to do that initially was to um, bring in the speed camera program, which had the ability to deal with multiple offenders initially, but then the word gets around and behaviour changes. So back when back when the cameras were first introduced, there was about 88% of people that went past a camera site were above the tolerance threshold. But now if you look at prosecution rates on camera sites, it's uh, less than 1%. So there's been a massive change in behaviour in regards to travel speeds on our roads and um, you know, that was certainly one of the main uh, things that led to that uh, 270 less deaths in that first 12 months of operations from 770 in 89 to 500 in 90. So how did you get word out to the public? Like that's a huge drop from 88% to 1%. So how do you get that message out to the public? So in, in reducing um, road trauma or reducing any risk or hazard, effectively, you know, you use the three E's, what's called the three E's. So one one is um, education, uh, one is engineering, and the other one is enforcement. So um, examples of that are, um, for example, engineering uh, in, in terms of the road environment, um, better friction road services, sealed shoulders, uh, wire safety fencing off the side of the roads or, or steel W-beam Armco barriers, safety fencing, energy absorption terminals at the end of those barriers, um, frangible-type lighting poles. So if a vehicle slides off and hits one, it doesn't penetrate into the car, it just has a slip base on it or an impact absorber. You know, in terms of the, the vehicle itself, you know, the additional safety features that have come along um, in terms of motor vehicles over the years. So, you know, we initially went, uh, you know, seat belts and collapsible steering columns in the early 1970s. Um, and then on, through the course of my work, you know, in 1997 in particular, I went over to Detroit, Michigan in the US and uh, found out about things like stability control and feet airbags and side airbags and um, all this sort of stuff. And that they've eventually... Um, you know, frontal airbags, side airbags, security control, um, seatbelt pretensioners, all the, all these sort of things now are, are standard in cars as well as things like uh, driver fatigue alerts and all that that have made a difference. In terms, so that's some engineering examples in regards to the road and the, and the car or automobile. Um, in terms of, um, you know, the driver, most of the time crashes are associated with human error. Human beings make mistakes. Um, and what needs to happen there is the education role. So 
in terms of education, probably the, the main role player from uh, what I saw was um, in my role was the Transport Accident Commission or the TAC. Um, they had a lot of money to spend on advertising because it was in their interest to do that because as part of your registration fee on your car, most of the fee is actually third-party injury insurance, um, which is TAC component rather than registration component. Um, so they, they were you know, keen to spend money on advertising to educate people and, and then the public saw um, a number of ads from the TAC and uh, a number of those ads I featured in, um, in terms of... Um, you know, speed reduction or, or the wipe off fire initiative, which um, started in about 1997, that aspect of it. Oh, it's, it's another world to me. Uh, it's fascinating. But, you know, the thing is that nearly everybody listening will um, be able to relate to what you're talking about because most of us um, have cars or most of us have, you know, been passengers in cars. So, um, what you've done is an enormous um, uh, accolade, really, because us being in cars, you have helped us, well, me, to live and, you know, obviously a lot of other people. Um, so in layman's terms, how do you reconstruct an accident scene? And I understand you've done years and years of a degree and I'm asking you to say this in two minutes, but just for us out there that don't know a great deal about it, how do you reconstruct a scene? Uh, well, <laughs> you sort of have to start at the very beginning and, and then go to the very end or, or start at the very end and trace back to the very beginning um, in terms of when you get to uh, the scene of a, uh, a collision. So um, you'll have the physical evidence that's on the road. You need to... Um, um, you know, one of the rules of investigators that you'd be well aware, Narelle, is failure to search is failure to find. So <laughs> yeah. um, you need to be able to uh, search that scene properly to locate all the evidence. And uh, fortunately, I've still got 20-20 vision and was probably one of the best ones at seeing black tyre marks on a black road at night time uh, <laughs> for quite a few years. Um, so, you know, and that, that's a skill in itself is actually being able to see that evidence um, under nighttime conditions and, um, you know, not everybody's got the ability or the eyesight to actually uh, be able to see all that and then you've got to use special techniques to um, mark that evidence out and with your crime scene numbers and photograph it. Um, so, you know, you go through that seven-point crime scene search, examine the scene, photograph the scene, measure the scene, collect all your exhibits, label all your exhibits. Um, so that's all your evidence. Um, in terms of our... Photographing, you know, fairly comprehensive photographs, uh, basically walking you all the way through the scene and then numerous photographs around the, the vehicle showing the outside damage and deformation to its structure, um, inside components, um, things like, uh, you know, how people were injured inside the vehicle, whether they hit a, the steering column, whether the seatbelts were worn, what evidence was shown on the seatbelts and being worn, what what injuries there are to the people, whether it be they go to hospital and you get a, a, um, a doctor report detailing injuries or your ambulance report that shows where the person had injuries or if it's if somebody's unfortunate enough to um, uh, lose their life in the crash you know there would be an autopsy report done with a detailed medical report detail and the type of injury so you know you'd have that biomechanics of crash injury relationship where you would uh, relate what you're seeing in terms of damage on the outside of the vehicle and the extent of that damage and the extent of force and the extent of velocity change back to the internal 
human um, collision as well. So, uh, yeah, it's a fairly comprehensive task. We, in terms of measuring, we would um, use uh, fairly, you know, we, when I first started out, it was the old string line and tape measure and a compass. Um, <laughs> you're, you're not uh, serious, are you? No, nah, correct. In the 1990, we were still using, the, the unit was using string lines, tape measures and compasses, uh, and you had to manually draw, you used a process of triangulation or right angle offset measurements um, written out on comprehensive notes with multicolored pens and then you'd sit on a drawing board drafting up that um, plan of the crash scene um, for, for up to two weeks. You know, like I remember the first triple fatality I went to um, was in September 1990 at Blackburn Road and Ferntree Gully Road where um, uh, a, a family um went through a red light on a Sunday morning and were hit by a, um, a gentleman uh, driving a, a Ford utility. It was a carpet layer and unfortunately th- three of the family were, were killed. And that like that scene took about 12 hours to measure up back then and I spent probably almost two weeks on a drafting board drawing up the plan of that crash. Um, there's Having my engineering background, and so, which includes surveying, there was um, – other tools available. So in 1992, um, the uh, accident investigation section, we first went to what's called um, total survey station technology, which is basically a surveyor's theodolite that's got an extra component in it of uh, electronic distance measuring. Um, So it allows you to measure all the angles and the distances from a fixed location to every item that you want to locate, whether it be physical evidence from the crash or the road environment itself um that was initially a two-person operation so one person operating on the um instrument the other person operating on a uh, a, a, a staff pole that had a reflective prism on it and uh yeah you'd basically go around the same uh mapping that out and uh doing your photographs um that technology then in about 1996 advanced through to what's called a robotic operation where you could actually do it as a one-person operation so do your initial setup at the instrument site and then you could actually drive the instrument from uh, remote access via a keypad attached to a plate on the staff pole and you would actually move around the scene and uh, get the instrument to follow you and measure the locations that you needed to pick up Um, then yeah, in the early 2000s, things like 3D laser scanner technology came on board um, and that had the ability to um, do a 360-degree scan of a scene, 40 degrees upwards, 40 degrees downwards, and measure something like 720,000 measurement points or data points in, a, in yeah. about a minute. Um, and, uh, would, and in that scan, it would actually pick up colour settings, black and white, Settings so the black and white was good for nighttime stuff, color during the day. Um, it would also pick up heat scale settings, so um, you know, like if there was had been a fire, or, or for example, you could pick up the area where um, the, were the hottest points if you, if you were there soon enough. Um, even in terms of uh, you know, skid mark evidence, um, the the air wing, for example, uh, introduced forward looking infrared um, pods on the helicopters on the Dolphin helicopter. And then now got the Leonardo helicopters, but you know if they were they were monitoring a pursuit situation from above and had that on of a night time, you could actually uh, see the skid mark evidence, uh, white hot glowing <laughs> from uh, wow. from that heat setting through the infrared. So yeah, there's a lot a lot of technology. Um, you know, camera technology advanced. You know, we've seen how cameras have advanced over the years and the and the quality of um, 
uh, photographs that you get and the and the ability to um, edit or improve um, with lighting conditions or sharpness um, to make make um, things actually appear uh, more visible to um, people looking at them. You know, um, whereas with with the older technology uh, wouldn't show things up as good so yeah so with all this technology that you're talking about that must have uh, cut down the time at a scene tenfold like you know you're saying 12 hours at a scene for say a triple fatality so now with all that technology if you had a triple fatality today how long would it take uh, for you to do that scene as opposed to 12 hours, you know, in the 1990s? Um, well, obviously it depends on the type of vehicles involved. Um, but, you know, if it was just, say, a two-car uh, collision on a country road, you know, you could, uh, you could map that out um, in under an hour um, oh, with the technology that mm. you've got, um, whereas, you know, previously that would have taken... 12 hours to measure up. Um, so the, the, the quicker that you're able to get in and measure and document that crime scene and get the road reopened too makes a difference in terms of um, road trauma reduction because, um, you know, if you've got a main highway shut, you've got other vehicles being diverted off onto secondary roads and then um, you get people that, you know, ultimately get impatient and they do stupid things or they tailgate, don't give themselves enough distance and, uh, you know, they, they might be running late. So they make a lot of bad choices and then, then you end up with uh, a collision on those secondary roads. So, um, yeah, we, we were very aware of that and um, in the work we did and that's why, you know, the, the um, various technologies were upgraded to uh, try and improve the efficiency um, so that you, you get in there and uh, get out, um, you know, a, as soon as you can. Mm. Um, just before I go on to uh, the next thing I want to ask you, I want to go back just the safety fences that are on our roads now. I've often wondered how do you identify uh, and why do you identify a certain um, area that has those, uh, you know, what we call the cheese graters. Why, like I look sometimes and think, oh, yes, there's a tree there or there's a, um, a, a bit of a, um, oh, a, a hill or something. How, does, how do you identify where to put those barriers? Well, a lot of it comes down to um, available clear zones. So, um, for example, in a, in a 100 kilometre per hour speed environment, a clear zone where 85% of people could recover, that's a, it's a, it's a lateral distance from the edge of the traffic lane, um, is nine metres for a 100k environment. So if you've got narrow objects within that clear zone, either if they can't be removed, well, then you've got to put up safety fencing to change the situation. So if somebody did lose control, they don't often hit a pole or a tree, they uh, would go into a very energy-absorbing structure. Um, I don't like the word uh, cheese cutters, which a lot of motorcycles... No, no, I sh- I, the minute I said it, I thought I shouldn't have, yeah. Um, they're actually... You know, we've, we, we did a lot of testing with Monash University over the years of the various types of, of barrier systems, and uh, I've, I've seen the um, 
you know, effects of where, a, say, a motorcyclist hits the steel W armco railing uh, rather than wire rope safety and uh, it's a lot more drastic outcome on the steel W beam than it is on the wire rope safety fence. And, you know, in terms of the ones that I went through, um, you know, there was one where the motorcyclist basically high-sided and went over the top of the fence and uh, was struck by an oncoming vehicle. And then there was another one where they actually lost control um, and slid down on the road and then the bike in tumbling sort of landed and crushed crushed him so it didn't have anything to do with the fence. so yeah because if, you, if you're looking to um you know the, the impact forces for vul- vulnerable road users um you need you know for a limb or something to be cut off you, you effectively need a 90 90 degree impact at about 100 kilometers per hour you know in a pedestrian crash for a lower leg to be um severed off which from the research i've done it's pretty gruesome but uh, that's the reality of it um Whereas on a, with those safety fencing, generally you've got people sliding off the side of the road, coming in at an approach angle somewhere between 20 degrees to 45 degrees. So it's more of a side swipe type incident. Yeah, so, yeah, they, they, have, they have done some improvements. Um, to, probably, you know, the, the post structures are the, are the more thing that, you know, people are likely to hit if they're uh, – you know, ejected up from a motorbike. So, um, yeah, it's um, but better than going off into oncoming cars or oh, yeah. Yeah. narrow objects. So, yeah. yeah. Is there anything at a scene that's ever really stumped you that you can't work out how it's happened? I'll probably, um, yeah, there was one particular scene. And, you know, eventually we worked it all out, but it took a bit longer than normal and that was um, – was a triple fatality down at Warren Ponds and it was about 1992 uh, and I went to it with uh, Sergeant Brian Worcester and uh, Brian unfortunately uh, passed away. He, um, he uh, not long after that, had a massive heart attack and died, which um, mm. unfortunately one of the three long-term effects of uh, being a first responder or being in the military is uh, with the PTSD you also uh, have the situation of um, things like Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease and bowel cancer. So they're long-term effects. And, um, yeah, poor old Bertie, he, um, he passed away from a heart attack not long after that. Um, but that, that particular scene was um, there was a Volvo G88 prime mover, Cab over, heading uh, outbound away from Geelong um, with a, a flatbed trailer on the back, no load on it, um, and there was a car in front of it that slowed down to turn left. Um, coming the other way was um, a, um, a Falcon sedan uh, with a couple in there and then a, a B-double truck. Um, B-doubles had only just been introduced onto the Victorian roads back then, so they're they're 62.5 tonnes or 62,500 kilograms maximum GVM, gross vehicle mass. So it's a lot of energy, lot of energy there. Um, you know, and at that point in time, it was a 100 kilometre per hour road zone uh, or speed limit there. So the unladen truck, um, 
coming up on the back of the uh, vehicle which slowed to turn left um, is unladen. Um, when you brake heavily um, in a truck that's unladen um, back then, you know, you're quite quite likely to um, you know get skid- skidding occurring from certain wheels. Um, and uh, what actually happened was um, the uh, in that particular instance the um, trailer brakes were a bit out of adjustment, and which mean they didn't come on as effectively as they should have. And so what happened was the the drive wheels on the prime mover actually uh, locked up. And that sets off a, uh, a what's called a, a jackknife situation that put the the Volvo Prime Mover out on the wrong side of the road, um, sideswiped the uh, car with the couple, the Ford, and that spun off off the highway. And then um, the both Prime Movers then had a massive impact, um, so much so that it rotated the Volvo Prime Mover completely around beneath the leading edge of the trailer and just took took the whole top of the um, prime mover off um, and then the, the Kalari um, B-double, um, which was fully loaded with sand in both trailers, it oh, um, God. Right. rolled over and went over onto the side. So that, that one in particular is probably one that, you know, as I recall, it was took a little while, quite a while to work out what's going on, but you just got to go back to your basics and go through, follow uh, the pathways of the vehicles in, looking at everything attentively, look at the evidence on the road and uh, look at the evidence on the vehicles and uh, eventually piece it together. And the, and the other beauty that we've got now and also even in that particular collision was that um, we started to have um, onboard vehicle monitoring systems that would record speed and engine RPMs and, um, you know, it, it record whether our brake switch so it's come on to indicate braking um, and all those sort of things. And, it, you know, in the later model cars, it's recording velocity changes in the front to rear direction and the, and the left to right direction um, and whether seatbelts were buckled in and whether stability control systems came in. So a very, very technical role, um, you know, not only uh, the investigators from Major Collision Investigation Group, um, you know, statement takers and, and interviewers of uh, suspects or offenders, uh, they are very, very highly skilled in uh, use of technical equipment um, and, um, you know, documenting those horrendous scenes, um, you know, which when, when you look at it, um, like in terms of your role, you know, when you were at homicide, um, you know, you, you would be taking statements, doing investigations, listening devices, phone whatever search warrants um you know we'd, we'd do all that as well but um in your role at homicide you would have crime scene come out and document your scenes or and mm. photograph and right. yep. whereas at major collision unit you're actually doing that all yourself so um you're, you're probably getting that even though you're going to a lot more jobs you're actually getting a lot more exposure because you're right in amongst the the nitty nitty-gritty of it, you know, looking at all the detailed evidence and uh, unfortunately one of the side effects of that is also the, the horrendous sights that you see. And that, Lee, I can't imagine, Peter, I really can't. Um, so being so constantly confronted by um, deceased bodies, I suppose, and grieving friends and relatives, at what point did you start to think uh, that maybe you weren't managing or did that never happen 
Uh, yeah, so probably, so I joined the job in 1986 and, um, yeah, got to the accident. I was, did general duties, southeastern suburbs, and then into town for a bit and then back out to southeastern suburbs and uh, doing general duties on the van and then went to the traffic operations group. And in that, in that time, you know, I sort of showed an interest in going to the um, uh, more serious collisions in the area to get develop my skills and knowledge um, and then that ultimately led to me going to the unit in 1990 and getting a position there. Uh, so from 1990, like I can go back to probably in the first first shift at the unit, I can still remember I went to two, uh, went to two fatalities in the first shift. Uh, one was a cyclist that was um, hit out at Cranbourne and then the other one was a truck and car collision at um, uh, Victoria Street and Exhibition Street in Melbourne. So that you know that's thir- <laughs> yeah thirty years ago now. So you know, and that um, was your and that was your first shift, like a, and a shift for those out there. The the shift is generally eight hours. So within that shift, you've gone to the cyclist and uh, your the uh, other our the- occupant killed by a truck at an intersection in town. Yeah. <laughs> So that's just in the first shift. So, um, yeah, um, so probably um, and then the very first police officer fatality I went to who was off duty at the time, um, Senior Consul Peter Cannon, you know, that was at uh, on the Hume Highway just south of Wangaratta on the 13th of July 1990, um, you know, and... Unfortunately, Peter uh, had a fairly high level of alcohol in his system, but you know, when you look back on it and the knowledge I've got now, you, you sort of realise that you know, there, there has been a bit of history at times of, of members off-duty being involved in drink-driving incidents, but when you look at it, it's um, what they're actually doing is trying to <laughs> calm the anxiety associated with post-traumatic stress um, by using alcohol as a means which is not ideal um in that instance um you know peter went onto the wrong side of the road and hit head on into a truck so yeah millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Obviously, there was never any particular note left, but that type of situation over the years, car head on into a truck, night time, you know, 100k speed limits, uh, uh, is a way where people that are, you know, are in the depths of depression and really struggling with, say, PTSD or any other mental illness um, might use that as an option, unfortunately. So going back to, so those, that, when I said about, um, um, was there a time when you thought maybe you weren't managing? So that first yeah, shift that, in that 2005, and- yeah, 2005 probably was when I started to realise that. So it's 15 years at being in the in the unit by then. Obviously, you know, I've still got a pretty high level of resilience, probably <laughs> more so than some. And um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was 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 around it. Um, 24th and the 26th of April, 05, um, and obviously got Anzac Day in the middle. Um, and, you know, and there's history of um, uh, military service and, on various sides of the family. Um, but the 20, 24th of April, 05, was when uh, Tony Clark uh, from Region 4 Traffic Task Unit was uh, shot and killed by a mentally disturbed driver after an intercept. There was a struggle in Tony's... Um, uh, firearm in that struggle was um, seized by the um, driver that he'd pulled over um, and then the, the, the driver shot and killed Tony and then he went up the road and shot and killed himself. So then on the Tuesday morning I'm sitting in the office, that, that was on a Sunday, and then on the Tuesday morning I'm sitting in the office um, actually completing the crime scene plan, which was measured up using a total survey station back then, but, yeah, annotating all the evidence and uh, putting title blocks and then sending it off to the to printer as part of the exhibit for the brief of evidence. Um, when at 8.30 in the morning we get a call to go to um, another police officer's uh, crash and that was Senior Constable Rennie Page up at um, the, around the 200K post on the Hume Freeway at Benalla. So... Um, 
Rennie had uh, pulled over a, uh, a driver for speeding. He'd checked check the speed of the car on the radar. And, you know, the radar, uh, the speed of the car was still showing on the radar when I inspected uh, inside Rennie's car. Um, you know, still showing 126 kilometres per hour. Um, he had obviously gone to the car that he had pulled over, and they're both in the emergency lane. You know, decided to issue a penalty notice to them, um, the driver. So he normally he would come back to the police car, write that out. Um, so he'd actually written that out, gone back to the car. This is 8.30 in the morning, perfect conditions, sun's not an issue, nice straight road, marked police car. And, uh, yeah, on returning towards the police car, walking along the safety corridor that we would do between, which is offsetting your police car to the car you got pulled over to offer you that safety corridor, um, a driver that had left Melbourne um, at about 6.30 that morning that was the um, area store managers for some Aldi stores at Wodonga and Wangaratta had, had left Melbourne at 6.30 and he's about two hours into his trip and effectively has what we call a micro-sleep oh. at uh, freeway speed, which is 110, and uh, drifts left, takes off the um, rear-view mirror on the driver's door of the police car um, and hits um, hits Rennie as a pedestrian at effectively freeway speed, 110 kilometres per hour, and... Um, you know, that uh, that was it for Rennie and um, so that, you know, pretty horrific injuries to Rennie and um, so I actually did Rennie's body recovery, removed his equipment belt, removed the firearm, made the firearm safe, um, assisted the undertakers to um, wade Rennie up onto um, the undertaker's trolley and, uh, yeah, zip, zipped him up. So that, that's probably – that was when I first, you know, I had trouble, difficulty sleeping Um and I went and did a, um, a debrief with clinical support after that. Um, but I thought, oh, yeah, that's it. You know, box on, keep going. <laughs> so, yeah, so that was, what I know now is what was the first signs of uh, what's called PTSD. I didn't, I didn't have a clue what PTSD was back then, but I know, know lots and lots about it now. I bet you do. Oh, gee, Peter. So going back to Tony and uh, Rennie, so you obviously, you attended both those scenes, is that right? And you did the um, the reconstruction, the photographing, everything. Is that right for those two? Uh, uh, for Rennie, Rennie I, I did measuring and photographs, um, and but for Tony, um, one of the other crews had gone out that morning, on the Sunday morning, and photographed and measured it but you know you bring it back to the office and I'm looking at all that it's, okay. it's just like yeah. being really you're yeah. actually looking at all the evidence in the photographs and you're um, and I'm doing the plan so you've got a really really good visual picture of <laughs> it's just like being there really there's no yeah. difference yeah, yeah. okay um, and and you said that you went for a debrief with clinical support um yeah what was that debrief like like did you uh, we, we, I don't mean this to sound the way it's going to, but were you honest with how you were feeling or, or were you putting on a bit of a front? Look, it's just another job, it's terrible, but, you know, as you said, box on and on with the next one. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's what we do. Um, you know, it, um, it's it's sort of a thing where, you know, back, back then it um, 
you know, you'd heard of things in the past, but you sort of think, oh yeah, no, that's I'm all right. That's not that's not happening to me. I'm 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 all good to go. Um, and uh, you push on. Yeah, that's that's what we do. That's what first responders, health workers, doctors, military do. And um, you know, you as a as a young recruit or a young nurse or a young uh, military personnel. Um, you get to work through what's called your fear flight process initially because the your drill instructors or your instructors actually yell commands at you, um, fires your fight flight system up and initially allows you to uh, work and uh, get through that particular incident. But then as you go to more and more events throughout your career, um, each time you respond to a new event because of what you've seen from a previous event and all your knowledge from the previous event, you are now more aware of more risks and dangers and you've smelt more, you've heard more, you know, you've seen more. And that all then, all those things um, become part of your memory and your hippocampus of the brain. Um and eventually what happens with PTSD or, or the chronic PTSD that I've got is that, um, you know, the subconscious brain will um, remember um, when triggered by things like sights, smells, sounds, and then the amygdala in the brain that controls the fear flight goes, oh, yeah, I, I remember that. That's related to this incident. And, of course, when you went to that incident at the time, um, everything was go, go, go. You know, the, you had the lights and sirens going to the scene. Um, you know, the adrenaline's pumping around the body. The heart rate's going faster. Um, it's setting your body up to protect you from what you're about to go to or, or what you're about to see or what you're about to be threatened with, if, you know, in the instance of when, when I had a couple of shotguns and a few knives and stuff pulled on me. So what happens is in that subconscious mind when you're asleep or when you're just resting and not doing some activity, um, the mind will flow back into those sort of events because it's in your memory. And next minute you get that adrenaline cortisol dump into your body and uh, then you get the hippy-hippy the shakes and the psoriasis and the elevated heart rate and the bloated stomach and the sweats and sweating on the arms and sweating through shirts and all these sort of things, so which are the physiological reactions of PTSD. I was just actually going to ask you, what were the signs that you experienced uh, that you sort of thought, gee, this isn't right? So you just said then you were sweating profusely, you weren't sleeping. Uh, what other signs did you have? Uh, your bloated, bloated stomach, um, you know, initially waking up at uh, back around about that 05, 06, I was waking at, three, four in the morning and up out of bed and, you know, I was going off doing 10K runs and 40K bike rides um, before coming into work at 7 a.m. Mm. So, you know, why I've, do you think you were doing that? Oh, you've got all this adrenaline going through your system and trying to burn it off, I suppose. So, <laughs> yeah, and that that's that's what it, what it is. And, um, yeah, so I, I can't actually go to the extent of that level of fitness um, that I was back then. Like, if I'd go for a bike ride with the boys on a on a Sunday morning, you know, there used to be a um, 
there used to be a stretch called Under the Bridge from uh, North Road and Douglas Parade down in Newport through to uh, um, Francis Street and Hyde Street in Yarraville. And, uh, yeah, on um, Matt My Ride, you know, I held I held the gold record on that just about every week. Um, and you when, had so much adrenaline. Oh, yeah, 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 hitting yeah, 40, yeah. 45, 50K speeds and because um, yeah. the adrenaline goes through. And, and when, uh, if we go back, if we go to a job in 18th of February 06 where the six teenagers were killed at Mile Street Cardross up near Mildura um, with the offender Thomas Tao, um, you know, during uh, the trial for that job, I had been off with the initial diagnosis of uh, the PTSD from about September 2007 because that was a few months after the Kerrang Rail disaster on the 5th of January 07 and, you know, I had a series of a number of trials and, yeah, basically found myself walking around the golf course on time off crying. I thought, this is not right. And, um, yeah, mind you, went into the office that day with a uniform on. Um, Boss could see that, you know, their eyes were a bit red and, you know, that take much to work out somebody's been emotional or crying and uh and, uh, said are you all right and i said well not really you know i just need a bit of time out i think and um but they, they actually put me on to work cover so that was the first time on a work cover and i think i was off for 13 weeks back then uh, and um the main main reason i came back because i you know i got a letter from uh, the work cover insurers back at that stage saying that oh you're now back to 80 percent of uh, what you're on and having a young family, you thought, shit, buddy, how's this going to work, you know? Mm, yeah. Um, go get the family going and you're all the sole, being a sole provider. So, um, you know, you both try and get yourself back back to work. So my return to work after that period was in the first in seven shifts back from the end of week one through to week two uh, was – giving evidence in three court cases. Um, one of them was a, the one in regards to the six teenagers killed at Mildura, where I was in the witness box for four days. Um, one of them was a double culpable hit run where a um, gentleman driving a Ferrari and a, a female passenger um, and a person in a Ford had decided to have a bit of a, a drag race out of the blue. And went, you know, they were side by side, a set of lights out. Out, out east on the Warby Highway. Um, Sorry, you just said then they're having a, a race between a Ferrari and a Ford. Yeah, oh, it was an FPV GTV, so it was a I reckon the Ford. I reckon the Ferrari might just, you know, edge out the Ford, wouldn't you think? Well, it didn't. <laughs> Yeah, in that situation, the rear tyres were a little bit underinflated on the Ferrari and they've come up over the crest of a hill on a right-hand curve and the Ferrari's in the right lane, which has got a slightly tighter turn radius than the outside lane and uh, Ferrari lost control at about 160 k's and sideways into um, a tree and the car's completely disintegrated. So, yeah, so that was um, – so I had, yeah, four days for the tower trial in the box, Supreme Court, um, in the county court in regards to that matter that I just spoke about. Um, and there was another neg caused serious injury head-on job from the geelong Bacchus Marsh Road. So during the towel trial, I experienced, like in the box I was all right, although underneath the tunic, you know, the armpits were very, very 
Oh, yeah. Um, yep, yeah. But then would have the break and in the break, one of the breaks in particular, I, I just started like hyperventilating and thought, what the hell is going here? So um, Cripsy, uh, who was informant in the case, he, he – um, he made a phone call to clinical support and um, in in one of the breaks, and then I I spoke to the person from clinical support, and they said, "What's going on?" I said, "This is this is going on." They said, "Oh, you got all this adrenaline. You need to go for a walk or a run or, or something." So I was an extended gym. It was about two hours. So I remember driving in the car just back home, um, which you know was less than ten k's from the court, and uh, I hopped on an electronic exercise bike. We had, and I smashed out um, an average speed of fifty-five kilometres per hour for twenty minutes. That's that's like almost uh, Olympic um, team sprint sort of stuff. Yeah, but that's how much adrenaline you had, and that you just couldn't get rid of if you didn't get on the bike. Yeah, yeah. And now I can't do that because if if I do that sort of level of training now um, and get that elevated heart rate and the sweats, what happens now with chronic PTSD is the amygdala. Uh, in the brain's going, oh, you're sweating and your heart rate's up, job one. So it'll give me another hit of adrenaline um, and cortisol and so the adrenaline will push my heart rate up higher. So you, you risk having things like heart attack or a stroke, um, which I've had three emergency trips to hospital twice for symptoms of heart attack, once for symptoms of stroke. And, uh, yeah, it's pretty far. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that would be an understatement. So... You just said then, so you've got had 13 weeks off yeah. and you go back and you've got three trials. Yeah, two trials and a committal hearing, yeah, in, in basically in the second week back. Like it, it just defies um, defies everything. I, I don't know how you did it. Yeah. But then I, I, remember, I remember on the return to work trip, um, you know, uh, the boss and the senior sergeant inspector Pick me up from home to take me to the return to work thing, and I was presented with this court list because obviously a number of matters had been adjourned whilst I was off. Yeah, and I'm thinking, how the fuck am I going to do this? Mm. You know, and I actually cried. I thought, you know, in the meeting, I thought, anyway, I did it in that first week back, and um, but then I realised, no, mate. I- I sort of need to get out of this uh, area, so and that's when um, uh, the boss sort of said, "Well, you know, we can. Uh, how about you go and work in with Ken Lay for a bit with um, the other guys that uh, from our unit that used to work with." So when in, that, in 2008 and the first half of 2009, spent most of the time in the Victoria Police Centre, so uh, doing uh, project work. Um, for Ken Lay, who was assistant commissioner at that stage of, of traffic and transit, so doing and all the reporting for the department, um, but also still looking at um, daily incident fact sheets of all the fatalities and briefing him on on that. Plus, also in that time, um, still receiving photographs and emails from my s- subordinates um, and other members of the unit. You know that were seeking my knowledge and skills to um, assist them in in doing their in their work. So even though you're not physically going out, you're still seeing incident fact sheets on a day to day basis with names of people killed, locations, places. Plus, you were still seeing um, photographic evidence of some of those coming coming through. And then in the um, you know, and 
in that time in the Victoria Police Centre working with Ken, um, you know, I had the committal hearing for the Kerrang Rail disaster, which had occurred on the 5th of June of 07, um, where 11 people were killed on the train heading from Connell to Melbourne at the railway crossing at Kerrang when the truck um, ploughed into the side of it. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that, that committal was, you know, same thing again. I was all okay in the box, although obviously sweating profusely on the armpits, which people wouldn't necessarily see because you had your tunic on. But, um, yeah, as soon as uh, the court, fin- uh, you know, you finished giving the evidence and you're standing there in the court with the families of 11 victims, it's pretty uh, pretty full on. It was very, very emotional time. Um, and I I remember getting back to eventually getting back into the VPC, you know, the next day or wherever it was, and um, Brett, one of the other guys I worked with in there going, how'd you go? And, you know, same thing, just got all emotional and, yeah. You know, and you look back on those things and go, oh, you know, that's all associated with the, the PhD. Um, yeah. Anyway. So it sounds like when you had that break, and you came back and you went to work with um, uh, Whispering Ken, um, it doesn't sound like you really had a break at all because you were being inundated with um, uh, photos from your colleagues. And, I mean, I understand in a way your colleagues are asking for your opinion because, you know, you're an expert in the field. But in another way I'm thinking to myself, what are they thinking? This guy is trying to have a break and you you just can't you can't have that break. And some of the other things I did whilst in there, I was asked to set up a car crash reality display in Fed Square, oh, so I did that. Um, and that was involved with getting damaged vehicles in there and then also, um, you know, getting relatives of, you know, car crash victims to to speak. And I, and I spoke. I remember speaking with Neil Mitchell. He had a caravan set up there at Fed Square. So, yeah, so I spoke spoke with Neil and, you know, um, and I remember one of the other ladies there who uh, whose child was killed in a fatality back in the early 90s at um, Manchester Road and Maroondah Highway um, that the, the, our unit had gone to um, and she, she spoke as well and I, I remember catching up with her at the um, Time for Remembering Ceremony at uh, Parliament House for Road Trauma Support Services last Last year, and it was a bit of a moving, bit of a moving moment because I, you know, I'd seen her in that caravan talking to um, Neil that that morning when I got emotional, and then saw her again. So it sort of brings back that uh, emotional release. Oh, look, you know, there there is so much um, information that you have in that brilliant mind of yours. I could. I could listen to you for days. I would like and I want you to come back, but I just want to go to a couple of things. Um, how do you now manage your PTSD? Uh, yes, yeah, so effectively in managing PTSD, it's like managing the goalposts. Um, the goalposts are anxiety and depression. Yep. So in terms of bringing those goalposts in or those wavelengths in, um, I take medication to um, to for that element. So um, going back initially 
when I first went to the uh, Austin Repat Hospital to do the post-trauma recovery course, although you get there, you get there and they say you got you got PTSD or chronic PTSD. There is no recovery to this, but we'll teach you how to manage it. Okay, all right. So you, sort of, you think you're going to? Thanks for that vote of confidence. <laughs> they, they sort of say, yeah, yeah. Look, this will be with you for ever in a day, but we'll teach you how to manage it and move on, which is, you know, and, they, and they explain how it all transpires, which gives you, once you've done that, it gives you an understanding of what's going on because before they don't really know what's going on, but then you understand what, what's going on. Um, and, and, yeah, so you prescribe medication. There's a lot of um, uh, exposure-based therapy, cognitive-based therapies, um, psychologist appointments, psychiatric appointments. Um, you know, then, then you to bring those wavelengths in even further, you, you start to um, learn other techniques, things like um, yoga, Pilates, emotional freedom techniques or the tapping solution, um, flotation therapy in float tanks um, and, you know, meditation apps, um, using apps like PDSD Coach on, on your phone to a self where you are at a given point in time. Um, so what you're doing is actually monitoring where your levels are at um, and uh, trying to bring those wavelengths of the height riding depression in, in closer so that you can move on and function and, and achieve other great things in life. I was um, talking to you last week in preparation for today and you told me uh, that you also have um, massage balls that are a great um, sense of comfort to you and that you have them in the car so that when you're driving or you're about to drive and you're feeling a bit anxious, you use them. Um you know, and you're obviously very. Um, you've got you're very busy with a whole lot of stuff, aren't you? Like you've got your fighting PTSD, Vic Pol Group. Uh, you're involved with Code Nine Foundation, Men's Shed. Like you certainly keep yourself busy. Yeah. Um, look, I just yeah, club modelling and uh, life saving club. So do you do yeah, some so, modelling? Do you, yeah. Pete? Yeah, that's my sort of art. Not, not, uh, yeah, well, I could. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, oh, aircraft modeling. Sorry, of course, of course. Um, yeah, yeah military modeling. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, that's my, one, of, one of the things that a lot of veterans, you know, they are doing is um, art therapy for mindfulness. And um, I used to do that a lot as a, as a young fella and then didn't do it for a while and then got back into it in the early 90s and was pretty full on into the hobby probably till around about that time where Tony and um, Rennie. Uh, yeah. Rennie was. Yeah. And then I stopped. Um, I just didn't have the attention or concentration or the ability to sit down and, and do it anymore. Um, you know, so I, I I even got to the point where you know, I wouldn't go to the club meets. So you're socially isolating, which is not good. Um, mainly because the amount of devotion you were giving to the job uh, was really tiring you out physically and emotionally. You weren't aware of it, but that that's what happened. Um, so you, you tend to isolate, you know, you, you tend not to want to go out to social functions. Um, you just bug it. You know, you just need, you just want to sleep and recover. Um, yeah. Um, you know, it's, 
it's almost funny how uh, ex-cops, um, you still have that sixth sense, no matter whether you're a cop for a week or you know. veterans now. <laughs> I don't like to call me, oh, yeah, I don't like to call myself yes. a veteran, but we do have that sixth sense. Yeah, you're still very switched on to everything that's uh, around. Yeah, you are, and and you just and you think that something or someone, you know, it's just not something right. And we're always watching people, aren't we? What they're doing, where they're going. And I just wanted to finish with this. When we were talking about this, you told me mm. about a situation when you were life-saving yep. and the, the suspicious-looking guy on the beach. Can we close with that story? Because I think, yeah. bloody hell, we can't get away from drama. Tell us about that story. Yeah, so... It's it's three years ago now. Um, so yeah, on patrol, just up in the observation room, the lifetime club. We actually had the beach closed because of, we'd had heavy rain and there was poor water quality. So we had the signs out saying beach closed, don't go in because you know you got to obviously stormwater drains got to go somewhere, and it comes out of the bay. So when it's like that, you shut the beach um, and tell people it's not advisable to go in until it clears up again. But anyway, so I'm up. Uh, we got the beach closed, sent uh, one of my young guys down onto the beach just to put the rescue tube and fins uh, back on the board because they'd sort of blown. It was a bit windy. And I uh, look out to the right towards Lagoon Pier, which is um, just the St Kilda side of Station Pier where the cruise ships come in. And a uh, gentleman halfway on the pier and uh, he's got um, he's got black jean trousers on a white t-shirt he's got the gold chain and the crucifix on um he's got a blue jacket on and he's got a uh, a white bucket hat on with australian flags on it um and uh, yeah skin was fairly dark on it um and uh yeah i thought oh he's pretty patriotic but he, he was sort of like looked like he was signaling the martians and i'm thinking <laughs> i'm thinking we've got one here anyway um, <laughs> So I'm keeping an eye on him and then next minute he's come off the pier and then down, I've sort of lost sight of him for a bit because of the sand dunes and the grass. And then he's appeared around uh, the corner of where our actual, we would have normally have the flags out on the patrol part of the beach and he's all wet so he's obviously in the water and uh, he, he walks up to um, my young bloke that I had, you know, he was only like 15 at that point in time on, on the beach and and flicks his patrol cap off his head, and I thought, what the, what the hell, you know, <laughs> WTF? Anyway, so, so I, I make headway downstairs, and he's I'm on the concrete on the beach side of the clubhouse, and then he approaches me, and he's right in my face. Like he's, he's like really invaded my personal space straight away. And he's, he's uh, you know, in, in broken English, he sort of said, have you ever – killed anybody i said no mate i wouldn't want to he said have you got a gun i said no nah, mate well, under here i've just got me budgies and under the <laughs> under the life <laughs> and, he, and he goes well I've, I've got a gun and it's at that point i looked down at the um underneath the right lapel of his blue suit coat which is wet from his being in the water and it's sticking out no, it's bulging out like the butt of a firearm sitting there off you know, so I've gone into your police training skills for gun grappling techniques. So I've, I've just put my hand on there and holding it, 
and with my left hand, um, our club president Brooksy was up in the radio room, and I, you know, I've sort of with my finger on my left hand done the three triple zeros, you know, and signaled to get on the phone, and and yeah. unfortunately he he realised what was going on, and <laughs> at the same time I'm trying to keep everybody of the public out of the way, move them out of the way, and, and so you know I'm I'm with this guy. You know, and he's just talking shit. He's off his face. Um, and he he grabbed the arm that I had on the butt of the firearm um, three times before, you know, police eventually arrived and twisted my arm up. But because, you know, when you're doing a fair bit of paddling on the rescue board, you know, you pretty strong the arm. So I was able to actually pull it back three times. Yeah, but eventually two police arrived and uh, took him away. <laughs> And uh, then, then, he, then he was back two days later, and I'm going, "What the fuck?" You know, what's going on here? And he got arrested again. And then, um, not not long, I, there was frequent reports of him harassing people up around Coles in Bay Street, Port Melbourne. And then, lo and behold, one of the boys uh, sends me a clip from Channel Nine News, and uh, here he is at eight thirty in the morning, a few weeks later, uh, walking up and down Chapel Street, waving a firearm around, and uh, got arrested. Again, and uh, that was the last I ever saw of him. So, yeah, I don't know what I haven't been doing. Anyway, there you go. Yeah, well, that just shows, you know, you you can't uh, stay, we can't stay away from it. It just sort of follows us, I think. But, look, Peter, um, thank you so much for today. Um, It's just such a fascinating insight. And thank you for everything that you've done in relation to road trauma because uh, clearly it affects a lot of people and that, as you said, that ripple effect. But um, thank you for everything you've done and um, I hope, you know, life gets better for you. So thanks, Pete. Oh, it's pretty good. I've managed it all right. But, but yeah, the hippie shakes, but okay. Thanks, Narelle, and uh, been great having a chat. Hey, it's Narelle here again. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser Interviews, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to leave a rating and even a review and please share it with all your friends too. And again, thanks for joining us. We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.